Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we come with great confidence knowing that you are God. Lord, that you have given us your word and you work mightily and powerfully through your word by your Holy Spirit. And we need to hear from you this morning, Lord. And so I pray that the words that I speak would not be just my words, but God, that they would be yours. God, that you would so work in the hearts of us as your people and your church to encourage us, to draw us, Lord, ever closer to you, to love you, to walk in the blessings and the, the salvation that you have given us so freely. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we come to chapter 2, let me just take just a moment to sort of get our bearings as we come to this new chapter. Uh, as you know, the Ephesians have already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe the gospel. Paul has already Thank the Lord for the faith that he sees in them. And not only that, but the evidence of that faith and the fact that they love each other. They have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and they had the down payment of the inheritance within them. And yet Paul prays at the end of chapter 1 that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened. You know, they were at the beginning of their Christian walk. You might say that they were babes in, in the faith. But Paul wants them to grasp, listen to this, Paul wants them to grasp something of the largeness and the greatness and the majesty of the wonderful salvation that they received in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's important for them. You know, you know that the Ephesians grew up in a, in a place in, in, uh, where there was much witchcraft, there was satanic activity. And uh, when they repented of their sins, we read in the book of Acts that they burned their books, witchcraft, of many, many, many dollars worth of books. And so they were subject to temptation. They were living in a world that challenged their faith. And they were surrounded by paganism and opposition in, in various forms. And so Paul is particularly anxious that they should... Be clear about the greatness of the power of God towards all who believe, which is something that we need to know and be certain of in our Christian life as well. And nothing is more critical than that we should be clear about the power of God that is evident in Christian salvation and that we live united in Christ and see that power at work in our lives. And so Paul writes in order to help us in this respect and, and it, it sort of has struck me, as not only as I've read Ephesians, but just read other scriptures as well, how much this theme of power is prevalent in Paul's writings. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, a very well-known verse, it says, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But how often do we miss or underestimate the greatness of God's power at work in us because we oftentimes think too highly of ourselves? That maybe sometimes we don't understand truly what our condition was before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it can be so easy for us sometimes to think that, well, we just needed a little help from God. That, you know... Yes, we were sinners, but we weren't maybe that bad. 
And this is a condition that, that's a struggle, not only for those that don't know Christ, but even for those who do. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 to the church there, and he says, not to think of himself more highly than we ought, but to think with sober judgment. That Paul was warning the Christians that, that they need to be careful not to think too highly of themselves. And so he tells them that they should be transformed by the renewing of their mind. And we know that that comes through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God that uh, works in our hearts as we spend time in His Word. Now, I think it's interesting. He uses that idea of transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then we read here in Ephesians how he prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. He's sort of praying for the same thing. That we would get it, that we would read the Word of God and we would see it and that we would understand that. You see, we will never understand the greatness of God's power and salvation if we don't first grasp the depth of our sin from which we have been raised. We will never grasp the greatness of the salvation unless we realize what we were before this mighty power of God took hold of us, unless we realized what we would still be if God had not intervened in our lives and he had rescued us. And so what I want you to see is as we come to chapter 2, it's almost a shame that there's a chapter division there. Because in Paul's mind, he uses a connecting word, and. He's wanting to tie together this idea of the power of God it's been demonstrated in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and how Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. All things have been placed under his feet. And he wants to tie that together with the idea that before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were dead in our sins. And so he says, uh, he unpacks just what that means, what we were like, because he wants us to understand how great that power is, that it could take us from the state where we were to making us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he unpacks just how sinful we were before we became Christians. So let's look, first of all, at who we were and look at what our nature was before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think most of us have a sense of who we are and what our nature is innately. You know, if I said, well, tell me, you know, what you're like, I think you could probably do that. You know, we, we think we understand what kind of person we are. And we live sort of in a modern climate of optimism about ourselves and, and our goodness. You know, we tell each other, you can be whatever you want to be. You know, even maybe you can be the president of the United States if, if you wanted to be. Uh, we are incredibly optimistic about our abilities and, and who we are. And, and, but we see that this is not just something particular to our culture. Even uh, in Romans 3, we, we saw that, that we have a tendency to think about ourselves probably more highly than we ought to. But the Apostle Paul, he gives us sort of a reality check in Ephesians chapter 2. He sort of hits a square between the eyes with this statement. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked now, he doesn't pull any punches. You know, he, he just sort of says it straight. He's not like a modern-day preacher who has to sort of warm up the crowd. And, you know, he just said, look, guys, this is the way it is. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He says, you came, before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were dead. Now, the word that he uses there for dead is the word that's used for a corpse. 
you know, he didn't say that we were basically good like we sort of hear in our society today that we're all basically good. Or even as some Christians would say that we were just sick. We just needed some help from God. He said that we were lifeless and we were dead. And we have, and Paul applies this to everyone. Notice what he says in verse 3 as he continues this idea of being dead. He says, and we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And then at the end he says, like the rest of mankind. You see the words that uh, he says here sort of echo what he said in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone in the world falls under this category. And if you are a Christian here today then this describes the way you were before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Even kids, even if you grew up in the church, maybe you're adults now or you're youth, but you grew up in the church and you felt like you were pretty good, this still describes what you were like. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, then this describes your heart now. There's no one that's exempt from what Paul's saying here. Now, what, what does he mean by dead? Well, obviously, he's not speaking about physical death because he goes on, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, or that could be translated, in which you once lived. So while we're, not phys- so while we're physically alive, what Paul is saying here is, is that we're spiritually dead. Paul is speaking of the living dead, if you would, or as the, the title of this sermon suggests, a dead man walking. So the life for the non-Christian is a living death. He's completely spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life there at all. Now, to understand what it means to be spiritually dead, I think it's important to understand what it means to be spiritually alive. And Jesus talks about that in John chapter 17 and verse 3. And Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to be spiritually alive is to know God and to be in relationship with Him and to enjoy God and correspond with God and be like Him, to share the life of God and be blessed of Him. And so to be spiritually dead is really the opposite of all of that. It is to be ignorant of God. It is to not know God. And when we're dead in our sins, we don't even desire God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, the person who is not a Christian knows nothing about spiritual things because he's not interested in such things. He's interested in things that would agree with worldly things. The person who is not a Christian finds the Bible very boring. He doesn't find movies or maybe uh, surfing the Internet or reading novels or conversations about recreation or video games or whatever things, you know, Uh, that belong to the world, he doesn't find those things boring, but he finds things about God boring. He doesn't enjoy conversations about the soul and life and death and heaven and God. 
He, he, but, you know, let's be honest, he can't help it. He just sees nothing in it and he has no interest in it. He's interested instead in people and their appearances and what they've done and what they've said and all these things that belong to the world. And this makes sense if you think about what Paul is saying here because that person is a corpse. They have no spiritual life in them. If I laid out a body here across this table, that body would have no interest in anything to do with life because there is no life there. And likewise, uh, there are those around us who are living and walking and breathing and yet have no spiritual interest whatsoever because there's no spiritual life. But not only does a person who is dead in their sin not like these things, he actually hates them because they condemn him and he doesn't like that, that feeling. And so sometimes you will even encounter people who are hostile to things that you might share that are spiritually minded. Now, that doesn't mean that the walking dead can't be religious. They can be very religious. They, just, they don't mind religion, actually. As a matter of fact, as long as they can control it and they can keep it limited to the degree that they feel comfortable, they want God on their terms, not on His. So without the life-giving grace of God... What Paul is saying here is we will not turn to him. The Bible puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. No one seeks for God. So it is possible for someone to think that they are spiritually alive when they are not. They are in essence spiritual. I'm going to put it this way. This is the best illustration I can think. I know, forgive me parents for maybe using this illustration. But they're like spiritual zombies. Okay, that's a, that's the best illustration I can I can think of. They're dead, but they're walking. They have desires, but they're not good desires. Uh, and that's how we are. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet at the same time walking around thinking that we're still alive, thinking we have a purpose, we have a meaning, and so we're living zombies. And Paul tells us that sin is at the root of death. He said, in the trespasses and sins, you are dead in the trespasses and sins. And Paul explains sin by using these two words. It sort of summarizes what sin is all about. The first is trespasses, which indicates uh, deviating from the right course. It's like getting off the path or, or crossing over a boundary or breaking a command. It really has to do with our rebellion against God. I mean, think about it. Imagine, if you would, that you were out hunting or you were going for a walk in the woods and you come up on somebody's property line and there's this big sign, no trespassing. But you say, but I want to go for a walk or I want to hunt over there. And so you totally ignore everything that the, land over, the landowner desires. You ignore the sign that's in front of you and you do what you want to do anyway. And when we treat God and his laws in this way, ignoring them or failing to obey them, we trespass against God. And all of us are guilty of trespasses because we have not perfectly kept his law. But he also talks about it as sin, which means falling short of the mark. It's, it's used of an arrow that lands short of a target. This would probably be what happens if I were to shoot a bow and arrow. It would probably fall short of the mark. It definitely wouldn't hit it, that's for certain. 
And it means falling, failing to meet the required standard of God's uh, perfect holiness. And as we said earlier, the Bible says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we may seek to follow the Lord, and we may seek to do things which is good and things which are keeping in accordance with God's character, but the reality is we will always fall short. And sometimes we might even do things that appear to be good, but we do so with selfish motives. We do not do so for the glory of God. And so we are not the people that God intends us to be. We were dead towards God, but alive towards wickedness, committing more and more sin, and yet saying, we are alive. And we look around us and we see the effects of sin all around us, whether it be in our neighborhoods, whether it be at our work, whether it be in our school, in our homes, in our nation. You just turn on the news and look at what's going on in the world and you can see the effects of sin. And so that is our nature. That is our condition before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why do we stay dead? Why do we continue on in our sin? Well, Paul says, because we are enslaved. We are enslaved. We're enslaved, he says, first of all, to the world. Then he said to the devil and to the flesh. Look at what he said. He goes, he talks about in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see, we walk in sin because it is natural to us, because everywhere we turn, that's what we see. That's what the world is about and what it promotes. And that makes sense. If everyone outside of Christ is spiritually dead, obviously they're going to walk in sin. And Paul once says that we lived following or we lived according to the world. Now, when he talks about the world here, he's not talking about our round planet. He's talking about the, the system of the world or the worldview. And we are under the influence of society's attitudes and habits and preferences. And think about, I mean, even how much the world has changed just in the last five to ten years. And things that probably we would have never considered before as a society are now realities and just everyday practices. And the world, as our master, is seeking to change people's minds and attitudes and actions it's a lot like a, a boulder that's sort of going downhill. It just sort of continues to, to pick up speed. And, and you know, as, as Christians even, we can be tempted to not want to stand out. We want to fit in. We want to be liked. And so oftentimes you find Christians even struggling and being in the world and sometimes seeking to be like the world. But for those who are dead in their sins, they are right there believing the things of the world. But it's not just the world that we're enslaved to, but also the prince of the power of the air, the, the, the devil that he's talking about here. The devil is in a place of authority over those who are spiritually dead. Now, please make note of this and hear me say this. Paul is not saying that the devil is in charge of everything in the world. God is still sovereign, right? God is still sovereign and he rules over all things. And we saw that at the end of chapter 1 as we see Christ's position in, in the heavenlies. But he is saying that the devil has been given spiritual power and influence over the world, especially those who are outside of Christ. And it makes sense because the devil is the author of rebellion. 
And so does it not make sense that he would seek to incur rebellion in those who are dead in their trespasses and sin? But uh, it's not just the world and the devil that enslaves us. And so we can't just sort of blame everything on the world and the devil. Uh, that enslavement also comes from within us, within our flesh. And he said that we lived in the passions of the flesh. Uh, we have not lived for God, but for ourselves because of our flesh. Now, what do we mean by flesh? Kids, when I'm saying flesh, I'm not talking about skin. I'm not talking about our physical body. At least not. that's not what he's talking about here in this passage. The word here means our fallen nature. It is that part of us that, that feeds on sin. So don't be confused and, and think that you can control your flesh apart from God. As a matter of fact, the flesh is not something that we naturally want to fight against. It is something that oftentimes that we like to, to, uh, to, to feed. It's only after a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwells within them that all of a sudden now there becomes a battle. There becomes that struggle. And we see that in the book of Galatians as we talk about the work of the Spirit and the work of the flesh in us. But when we're dead in our sins, there's, there's really not a struggle. And I, and I think when we think of being enslaved by our flesh, it's sort of confusing because we think of enslavement, we think of something that's forced upon us, something that is painful in a sense because it's being forced upon us. But our flesh oftentimes seems very appealing and to, to satisfy that. But maybe a better way to think of enslavement of the flesh is sort of a, a false pleasure. The desires of the flesh feel good and they appeal to us on a certain level, but they are desires that put us in bondage and lead to rebellion against God. And so we see our nature and we, we, we see why we continue on in that, but where does that lead us? Well, Paul says in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, he doesn't paint a very pretty picture here. He says that such a life of rebellion and sin leads to God's wrath. In other words, we are justly under the judgment of God, and he is right to condemn us for our sin. Now, the world and the devil and even our flesh uh, does not want us to take God's wrath seriously. It mocks us and it makes fun of it. Even many churches today are ignoring the Bible's teaching about sin and hell and, and God's wrath. And the world has been on a PR campaign to indoctrinate us that there's really nothing after death. It wants you to think that there is no eternal judgment. There is no wrath. As a matter of fact, there is no God. The only thing you should worry about is getting the most that you can out of life, that you can enjoy it, you know, now is the time to invest in these things. Don't worry about those things that are coming down the road. But brothers and sisters, the wrath of God is real. Now, some people, I think, when they think of the wrath of God, they think of like sudden burst of anger. Maybe like uh, we might see in some families, you know, where mom and dad... Uh, they're sort of just going along and it just seems like their kids are getting on their last nerves. I know no one here can relate to this, but their kids get on their last nerves and they just, you know, they've just had enough and they're like, oh, I can't take it anymore. And they just begin to, to raise their voice and their faces turn red and there's just this burst of anger. 
Well, you know, the kids know the routine if their parents struggle with this. They just know, you know what, we just need to be quiet, abide this, and it'll be blow over here in just a, a little bit. And some people think of God's wrath in that way, that it's just this outburst of anger. But the word that's translated wrath is a, is a building up. It is a indignation at wrongdoing with the focus of setting things right. It is the indignation at wrongdoing with the focus of setting things right. It is God being just in what he does. Now, brothers and sisters, every person outside of Jesus Christ is destined for God's wrath. Now, think about that in light of everything that we've just looked at. That we look at our rebellion... We look at the sin of God, our spiritual deadness towards God, where mankind seeks to live apart from God and even deny that God exists, that we live lives as, as dead people, enslavement to the world and the devil and the flesh and hostility toward a holy God. Now think about all the sin that happens in such a life as that. And God is going to take into account every offense done against him, against others, and he will set all those matters straight and bring about the just judgment that is due for every thought, every word, every action, every attitude that is done against him. Is that not humbling? Is that not humbling? How can we hope to stand in the face of such judgment? And I'm not talking about guilt based on our assessment of what guilt ought to be. We've already talked about how we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So we think we're not as guilty as what we are. But we're talking about the standard of a holy, righteous, perfect just God. And those who have not turned to Christ and cried out for His mercy will stand before God in judgment and be found guilty and will be cast into hell for all eternity. And when they find themselves standing before God on the judgment day, it's too late to do anything about that. And I just want you to know, if there is anybody here today that finds himself in that position where you say, I am Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It's not that that's a past tense thing for me. That's my present reality. Then I want you to know that today God calls you to repent of your sin and turn to him and to cry out for mercy. And if that's where you're at, I definitely want to talk to you after the worship service. Because what hope do we have in such a situation? Well, Paul paints a very bleak picture and we're going to talk more about the hope that comes next week as we get to verse 4 and following. But I want you to also see that there is hope here even in these first three verses. Look at the tenses of the verbs. Look at verse 1. You were dead. Verse 2, you once walked. Verse 3, 
We all once lived, or verse 3, we were by nature. These were things that happened before Christ. But Christ has come in His power and He has taken us, even if we've grown up in a PCA church, even if we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if we've been in a home where we heard Christ talked about often, until we have turned to Him, we were dead in our sins. We had no spiritual desire whatsoever. But our only hope is when God enters our world and He makes us alive in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, I guess what I want us to do this morning is to ask ourselves, do we really understand the depth of the sinful condition that Christ saved us from? Do we really believe that? Seriously. I think about Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he talks about that and he goes, I think many in the church do not. He said, and I think it's very evident that we don't really truly grasp how bad we were and how great the salvation is that we have. He says, because if we did, we would be praising God and blessing his name. In Psalm 103, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That is the norm for the Christian, for someone whose heart has realized the depth of their sin. Or he said, what about those that, that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? There are masses out there who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are not out there sharing our faith with them and telling them about Jesus Christ, it may be for various reasons, but one of the reasons may be that we don't believe that God has the power to change such a person's life. We look at them and their sin and we go, wow, they're so bad. They will never listen to Christ. And I think the people that it's the hardest to believe that God will change is our own family. And I think we struggle with that because we think that we weren't so bad that God just needed to help us out a little bit. But if we truly understood the depth of our sin from which he saved us, then we would say, if he saved me, he can surely save this person because I have seen the grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that uh, I've known a few people in my life that I can say I have seen that kind of change in their hearts and in their lives. One of the guys, he's, a, he's actually a PCA pastor. His name is uh, Jimbo. And Jimbo has a ministry in Florida. I get his texts all the time. But uh, Jimbo was a UFC fighter. He got injured. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this man is on fire for the Lord. This man is always talking about Jesus. Because he is so thankful for what the Lord has done in his life and how he's changed him. And so he not only is praising Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus all the time. 
And he is out there and he is sharing his faith with those people on the street. As a matter of fact, where he ministers is on the strip in Tampa, Florida, where the prostitutes hang out and where the drug dealers and the pimps are. And he started a church down there in a, in, a, in a park, in a pavilion, in a covered shelter. And they meet there every Sunday and they worship the Lord with prostitutes and drug dealers who have repented of their sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it reminds me of the story that Jesus tells or that Luke tells about Christ. In Luke chapter 7, in verse 36, uh, a Pharisee by the name of Simon has invited Jesus to come have a meal with him. And while Jesus is there in, in the Pharisee's house, the text says that a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was there, she came in with ointment and she came and she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And she began, the text says, to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, that is, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus looked at Simon and he said, Simon, he said, there was a certain money lender who had two debtors. One that owed him 500 denarii and one only 50. And he said, when they couldn't pay, he canceled both their debts. He said, which one do you think will be the most thankful? And Simon said, well, of course, the one with the bigger debt. Brothers and sisters, I wonder sometimes if our struggle in the church is that maybe we think that we've only been forgiven 50 denarii rather than 500 denarii. But Jesus has forgiven us all the same in the sense that we were all dead in our sins and in our trespasses. But he has made us alive in Jesus Christ. It is my prayer as a church that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to not only see the power of God that is at work in our lives, but to see the place from which he brought us so that we might minister to others, that we might be led to worship him, that we would not stand in judgment to people that make our lives inconvenient and say, oh, I just am so frustrated with those people. I just can't believe that God has put them in my life. But instead, we would have compassion. And our hearts would be broken. that we might minister in his name. Let's bow our heads for a time of silence.
Our Father, we come to you today to pray and to first of all to ask for your forgiveness for those for those times in our lives where we have acted more like Simon the Pharisee than we did like the sinful woman who couldn't stop worshiping Jesus for what he had done. Oh Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the mighty power of the salvation that we have received. Lord, that we might trust you in the salvation of other people. Lord, that we could walk in that salvation with humility, with a sense of gratefulness, being compelled, Lord, that others might know this wonderful hope that we have within us. God, please deal with any sin of our heart of pride or complacency or, or anything else, Lord, that keeps us, Lord, from, from knowing you and walking with you. Father, we thank you that your power to save is greater than Adam's ability to bring us into sin. Lord, we thank you and praise you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.